If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did a Quaker doctor from the south of England end up inoculating the Empress of Russia against the scourge of smallpox? By the later 18th century, the disease was killing approximately one in five people in Russia, and its ruler, Catherine the Great, knew that something needed to be done. In her new book, The Empress and the English Doctor, Lucy Ward recounts the tale of Thomas Dinsdale, the medical man who took up the risky challenge of helping the Empress. Putting the questions to Lucy was Eleanor Evans. So Lucy, thanks so much for joining us today. And your book explores a remarkable 18th century episode which saw Catherine the Great of Russia become the first ruling European monarch to be inoculated against smallpox. It's such a fascinating thing to explore and there are so many elements on which I hope we can unpack a bit today. But I wanted to start by hearing from you on what brought you to this tale. Well, it was actually a a meeting in a school playground. Um, I'd been living in Russia for a couple of years with my family. My partner had a job there and I came back. My children all went to new schools and um, the youngest had started school. I went to collect him on the first day and I met someone in the playground and I told her that we'd been living in Russia. And she said, oh, my family has a Russian connection. And I thought she'd say she was related to, you know, she had Russian ancestors or something. And she said, my great, 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 however many times grandfather inoculated Catherine the Great against smallpox. And I just went, my jaw dropped and I pinned her against the wall, let the children just mess around. And I asked her all about it. And that was um, 10 years ago. And I never let go of that story and constantly was interested in it and finally pursued it and was able to write it as a book. Well, I can see why it caught your attention. I've really enjoyed reading it. It's a fascinating tale. And I guess we should probably start by talking about inoculation because the past couple of years, people have become used to a certain amount of language around vaccination. But inoculation predates this. It's it's a practice that people might not be so familiar with. Can you introduce us to what was happening in the 18th century regarding this practice? Yes, the most important thing to know about inoculation is it's really what happened before vaccination. People tend to think that all vaccination as we know it today began with Edward Jenner and to some degree it did. But before that, there was a development of inoculation, which is really the foundational technology on which vaccination is built. Um, Smallpox inoculation essentially was about fighting fire with fire. It was about deliberately giving a patient, a healthy patient, a minute dose of the smallpox virus, live virus, to induce a mild version of the disease and confer lifelong immunity on them. Um, And it had the benefit of choosing a time when the the patient was in good health and uh, sort of able to receive that because it it did make people unwell for a few weeks but it was dramatically safer than actually having the the natural disease of smallpox. Smallpox was 
in the 18th century particularly, this is obviously an ancient disease. It goes back millennia. I mean, even the, the faces of, of mummies, Egyptian mummies, are, are scarred with what looked like smallpox lesions. But in the 18th century, it was particularly virulent. Um, it was a disease that almost everybody got at some point. Parents would be told don't count your children unless they've had, until they've had smallpox. And because everybody got it, it was widely believed to be kind of innate within the body. There was this notion of the innate seed. And so smallpox was seen as the body kind of expelling this poison. And inoculation was um, a means, it was, it was perceived really as a means of having the actual disease, but in a controlled manner. And um, that was how they uh, sort of understood it. And it was a technology that, had been practiced in in different forms in parts of Africa and Asia for a very long time, centuries, probably longer. But it came to Britain uh, from Turkey in the early part of the 18th century, very early. There were a couple of reports that came to the Royal Society, were published in the Philosophical Transactions, their magazine, talking about inoculation in Turkey. But it was brought here most kind of effectively by a woman who's now better known, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was an aristocrat and her husband was ambassador to Constantinople. She travelled with him and she witnessed very early there um, what were really smallpox parties where old women would inoculate children. And they did this using really what she described as a blunt needle. They would take inoculum infected material, pus basically, from the pustules of a, a someone with smallpox and they would make a tiny light puncture in the skin, incision in the skin of the child and then um, insert a tiny, tiny drop of this infected matter. The child would be ill briefly and then would recover and was then immune for life. Now, Lady Mary Wortley Montague had had smallpox. Her brother had died of it. She was instantly able to recognise this sort of extraordinary nature of this technology and she was determined to bring it back to England, which she did. Uh, she had her own children inoculated, um, her daughter in England, witnessed by members of the Royal Society of Physicians. And then she she was essentially an influencer. She went around telling everybody, this is extraordinary. She did set a fashion for this within at least the elite of London. And she actually managed to persuade the Princess of Wales, Caroline of Ansbach, to have two of her daughters, two princesses inoculated. So hugely significant kind of publicity coup for the technology. And the Royal Society then began to try to establish the uh, effectiveness of inoculation. And it was doing that because immediately this technology was in use in Britain. The rows that are so familiar today around vaccination began. And people started insisting that, you know, this was against the will of God. It was... Um, God's decision to to uh, inflict illness or death and man shouldn't be interfering with that. Um, there was also just a kind of, uh, people couldn't understand why you would infect a healthy patient. You know, why take a small upfront risk against something which you may never have to encounter? Um, and, you know, pamphlets were written about this. There were all kinds of really very uh, fierce rows about it. And in fact, the term anti-inoculator actually uh, the first use I could find of it was exactly 300 years ago this year. And so you can see, you know, we've been having very similar arguments for, for three centuries. Indeed, some really interesting parallels there. And so the ground is set for this practice of inoculation to uh, take on and develop. And into this scene then steps Thomas Dinsdale. What can you tell us about um, his own practice of inoculation, how he develops that? Well, Thomas Dimsdale is, um, he's born in Essex um, in a Quaker family and he 
um, becomes a doctor like his father. He trains, though, at St Thomas's Hospital. He's not allowed to go to Oxford and Cambridge to study because he's a Quaker. Um, but he trains with really the best of the best at St Thomas's. And he it's not absolutely clear when he um, first sort of learned about inoculation, but certainly he began practising it sometime in the 1740s. And... Uh, was had some really very um, sort of affluent clients, but he was also treating the poor. He had a very much a, a sort of Quaker conscience, um, so he had a very kind of diverse range of clients. But he did like making money, and uh, he did have um, some some very wealthy patients. What's interesting is during the 1760s there was a big change in the way that um, inoculation was conducted because. After it had arrived from Turkey, um, doctors in Britain had, had taken it up very enthusiastically, but they'd adapted the method. They'd made it far more complicated. They started making big incisions in people's arms and inserting huge amounts of pus and bandaging people up and, you know, opening people up to infection. Um, so they'd, and they also, the other key thing they did was keep, keep people after inoculation far too hot. They they dealt with fevers in that traditional kind of humoral medicine manner by trying to sweat them out of the patient, kind of enhancing what they thought the body was doing. Worst possible thing you could do. So inoculation was still far, far safer than getting smallpox. Smallpox killed about one in five of those that it that got it, and then it could leave others blind or uh, with other disabilities. And inoculation, even early on, um, the, the death rate was about one in 50 and so you have this very clear risk comparison. But uh, during the 1760s, another doctor called Daniel Sutton introduced a new method, which essentially went back to the Turkish method, uh, simplified the whole thing, tiny puncture, very small incision, didn't keep patients hot. But he was a businessman. He didn't want to give the secrets away. And he actually made vast amounts of money, more than the prime minister. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't divulge what he was doing. Thomas Dimsdale and other doctors, of course, managed to find out, talk to patients and worked out that he'd gone back to the simple method. And Thomas Dimsdale, crucially, in 1767, wrote a treatise, The Present Method of Inoculating for the Smallpox, where he explained this system. And he wrote it in a really a typical way as a man of his time, as an enlightened sort of doctor. So he talks constantly about, I've learned this through observation, through experience. This is empirical evidence. You know, this is not some inherited method that goes back centuries that, you know, it's not dogma. Um, and inoculation really did kind of epitomise that 18th century natural philosophy, scientific thinking, because it was new. They didn't necessarily understand it, but it worked. And they knew that from observation. And Thomas Dimsdale was incredibly good at it. And he tried different things. He wrote down, he noted, he observed, and he wrote all this down in his treaties, which eff effectively became a kind of manual to instruct people on how they could go about this, uh, this procedure safely and successfully. So how then does Thomas Dinsdale, a Quaker doctor in England, catch the attention of Catherine II of Russia, this great empress? Um, what, what, what's the connection there? How does that come about? Well, Catherine the Great's on the throne of Russia. She'd come come to the, the throne in a coup. She'd uh, overthrown her own husband, who subsequently was murdered very rapidly after uh, after the coup. She's a usurper. She comes to power in 1762. So she needs to establish her legitimacy as empress. She very quickly embarks on a programme of all kinds of reform, whether it be education, agricultural reform, health reform. She's very, very keen to uh, reduce the particularly child mortality rate in Russia, because she recognises that the wealth of a nation is 
partly invested in its in its people and its population. And child mortality is exceptionally high in Russia. Um, and smallpox is, it, you know, Russia is no safer from these sweeping epidemics of smallpox than any other European country. And um, so she's very concerned to address that. And in 1768, she's particularly concerned about smallpox because an epidemic comes to St. Petersburg and she ends up with her son, Paul, son and heir, essentially running away from this disease. And she goes and sort of shuttles between the palaces outside St. Petersburg, the capital, um, keeping away from this disease. She's never had it, so quite unusual. And she's terrified of it. She admits later that she's had this kind of lifelong fear of it. And she's extremely concerned that her son doesn't get it, both as a mother and also because her legitimacy, in a sense, derives from, from him. And so she is looking for a solution to this, as she always did, looking for solutions to everything. Very practical, very, very good at informing herself, very scientifically minded, really, as well. And uh, she gets particularly alarmed when um, the uh, fiancé of her um, her political advisor, Nikita Panin, who is also her son's tutor, his, his fiancé dies of smallpox. So she whisks her son away from Panin and thinks, right, I've got to do something now. I have to find a way to protect myself and my son. And she knows about inoculation. It was known in the Russian Empire and some doctors used it, but it was absolutely not established. Britain really was unique in its adoption of this method. Other countries um, were, were very wary of it. And so she knows that Britain is this kind of centre of excellence, if you like, of, of the technology of inoculation. So she sends to her ambassador in London and says, find me the top expert in Britain. And he looks around and through actually a Quaker uh, connection of his, another doctor called John Fothergill, he's introduced to Thomas Dimsdale. And Thomas comes and meets the ambassador at Fothergill's home. And the ambassador says, we've got this big project for you in Russia. Really, I don't think he at that point talks suggests that this is about inoculating Catherine, but it's more about in introducing the technology within Russia. And Thomas says, well, I'm 56. I've got this kind of very established medical practice. I'm doing very well, has good client base. He has seven children and he probably doesn't fancy this long overland journey to this mysterious country. And he says no. <laughs> and then a horseman gallops in 16 days from St. Petersburg uh, saying, you know, we really want this man, tell him it's for the empress. And so Thomas is informed that actually it, the job is to inoculate Catherine and her son. And he feels then this duty to go. And so he accepts, but he won't say how much money he wants. And that's something that proves to be actually incredibly beneficial to him because Catherine doesn't regard him as a kind of contractor. She sees him as a gentleman, really. And then very, very quickly in July 1768, he sets off. He takes his son Nathaniel with him, Nathaniel, who is um, a medical student. And they set off in this kind of very whizzy, fast chaise coach um, with seats that recline. And he's rather fascinated by that. And it takes them a month. And they get they make incredibly fast progress across sort of the north of Europe, along the Baltic shore. And they arrive in St. Petersburg and they're so quick that the hospital that Catherine has um, is setting up for them, which is called Wolf House, it's on the outskirts of St. Petersburg, isn't quite ready. And so they're, they're put up in this rather marvellous flat on a street called the Millionaya, which is right next to the Winter Palace, right next to Catherine. And, um, and then they're summoned to, to meet her. Right. So it all, all happens very fast. Um, and I wonder, can you give us a sense of the, the risk? There's a real sense of the precariousness of this situation. What was Catherine doing and what were the fears and the potential risks that could come from this event, this inoculation? I mean, the, the most fundamental risk, obviously, is is her life. You know, she risked 
her life, anyone did. I mean, this is, of course, the issue with with anything. You know, you are deliberately taking an upfront risk to avoid a far greater risk. And it really was a great risk that was on her doorstep. So she was, you know, rationally entirely right to to make this decision because she, uh, you know, power was invested in her. She needed to protect her son. And I think that was the the first decision she made was to inoculate him. But she was worried that if he died, he he was quite sickly, and that if he didn't get through this process, she would have been accused of poisoning him. You know, all kinds of rumours would instantly have emerged and that would have been the end of her, and it would have been. And so she decides to go first and then to have him inoculated afterwards. And, yeah, there was a risk. And But Catherine was, again, this is very much an evidence of her her idea of herself, but her genuine um, identity as an enlightened monarch to that extent. She she weighed the risks. She she looked at the data. You know, it's very Chris Whitty. She, she knew that, you know, one in five or actually even more people in Russia, it seemed to be a more virulent strain, died of this disease. And yet she knew that Thomas Dimsdale had treated 6,000 patients. She often sort of bragged about this to people and he'd had one death, a child, and that child already had what we'd now call underlying conditions, I guess. Um, and so she was. She trusted this man very, very deeply. And I th- it's very interesting to watch someone behave in an, a very rational way. You know, most of us don't. And in fact, there were big debates in France about this. The philosophes in France, the, the sort of intellectuals were the big supporters of inoculation there. And people like Voltaire, who was a great correspondent um, of Catherine. He was a huge supporter of inoculation. Diderot, there's a big chapter on the inoculation in the uh, Encyclopédie. And and the the philosophe in France saw it almost as the sort of enlightenment technology because it's a, it's very rational. It's about choosing to do something consciously that, you know, rationally you do, you might not want to do make yourself ill, why? But there's a reason to do it. And she thought in that way. Um, I'm sure she was afraid. I suspect she talked a lot about that because she was trying to control fear. Everybody does. But, you know, Thomas got there. He met Catherine and she was she would have been inoculated straight away. He he was very anxious, obviously, because the risks to him were enormous to the extent that she made provision for him to be able to escape if it had gone wrong and she died. And he would have obviously been torn limb from limb had he been captured. So there's there's actually a lot of there's always a story around this inoculation story of Catherine, which says that she put her horse and carriage outside her palace. And I never, I could not find specific evidence of that. But there is an account of her having a, a yacht moored in the Gulf of Finland. Um, so he'd have needed a carriage to get to that, but to take him out via the sea route, which is actually far more logical anyway. So in other words, she made provision for it to go wrong. He wrote back, he wrote home to a friend, fortunately, which gives you a real insight into the huge anxiety he was feeling. His friend Henry Nichols wrote these private letters. And he said he he told Henry to pay a debt for him if if he essentially if he didn't come back. So he was risking his life and she was too. But they were working together in, in quite an extraordinary way. Yes, it sounds like they were both very mindful of the risks. Um, and there's also this this element that I found really interesting that Catherine clearly had a view to this propaganda, if that's the right word, opportunity as well. There, there was this idea, you could probably explain it better than I can, that if, if one took pus from one infected body, the infected body would then die. And, and Catherine was very eager to combat this, wasn't she? That's right. And I mean, the, this the whole event took on far more kind of almost symbolic metaphorical significance than the specifics of protecting her own body and her son's really um you're right that um there was 
enormous superstition around inoculation in Russia. And she was very anxious to counter that in order to then be able to promote this technology across uh, across her empire. She had to kind of use, but her whole aim was to use her own example, to lead by example, and then to be able to introduce inoculation widely. And yes, she was very aware that people believed that if you were a donor of infected matter, so if you're the person giving the pus, um, you would die. And in fact, Thomas encountered that himself because he um, trialed the uh, his inoculation on some young cadets, some young soldiers, their age about 14. And he needed uh, inoculum to do that. And he went to a, a house of a, a peasant family just on the edge of St. Petersburg, uh, where a, a little boy had smallpox. And the family had all the windows shut. The room was incredibly hot. He, he desperately tried to persuade them to open the window. And they the, the mother actually prostrated herself. She threw herself onto the ground at his feet saying, please don't take this from my son. And he asked for translation and he found out that she was afraid that that would, would mean her son would die. And he tried to reassure her and he kept telling her he wouldn't do it if she was that scared. And then her husband spoke to her and he he thought that she'd been reassured. And then he, he learned later that really she'd just been told, if the Empress of Russia wants us to do this, even if she tells us to cut off our children's hands and feet, we have to do it. So they were just kind of obeying. He didn't, wasn't able to con- to convince people. But yeah, so Catherine was very anxious to demonstrate that this wasn't the case. And the way she wanted to do that was to use, she wanted to be inoculated first and then have her son inoculated from her. Uh, in the end, that couldn't happen because... Um, Paul ended up getting chickenpox and uh, was ill with that. And so his own inoculation had to be delayed. So he was uh, inoculated from the son of the the court apothecary. But I think she made the point, uh, you know, this is she still wanted to demonstrate that you could inoculate from other people. and, and, And I think other members of her court were inoculated from her. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The moment she died, you know, the first biographies of her were were representing her in that manner as well, as this sort of lascivious woman. And, you know, 250 years on, we're still still inheriting that. And I want people to know that this was something quite extraordinary that she did, that she did with her body very bravely. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. This this inoculation does come to pass. Uh, it seems like all the build up uh, in in your book, and then the, it happens, and it's a very sort of swift procedure, but clearly with such far reaching implications. What what can you say about that moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the actual inoculation is extremely dramatic, really, because after Thomas constantly trying to do these trials and things not really working out, he gets some really scarily bad results and he he's terrified and he keeps saying to her, look, it's just not working. And she says, well, what's the matter? And he tries to explain. And she says, look, I have complete faith in this. 
and she says, my life is my own. She's incredibly determined. Um, and then she summons him. She And he comes in his carriage to the Winter Palace at nine o'clock at night in the dark with his son and carrying a small child. They go up a back staircase and yes, they just go into the room. She's waiting on her own. And from this child who has smallpox, they inoculate her and it's done. It is, it's an instant. And then she's unwell, feverish. She doesn't have a good time, but she, of course... Yes, does recover. And then Thomas goes on to inoculate her son as well. It's not a great process at all. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of fever, racing pulse, awful sore throat, but better than having smallpox. And they both recover. And she then, essentially, then they move on to the sort of propaganda aspect of this, where she now has recognised really the significance of what she can do with this example that she set. And so she begins with, a huge party essentially you know there's fireworks there's there's gunfire um there's bells ringing uh, she has a big orthodox mass um where she sort of presents herself um as really a kind of almost like christ-like figure looking after his flock she's the little mother of the russians you know she she absolutely projects herself as this you know it, it kind of strengthens her own power and her identity as a legitimate leader and she she uses all manner of, of means to, to project that. She she actually commissions a ballet called Prejudice Defeated, which portrays her as Minerva, this goddess of, of war and of wisdom, um, battling against prejudice and superstition. She has poetry, plays. Um, she has coins minted that say she led by example. You know, she's an influencer, really, I suppose we'd say now. I mean, there's even this, yeah, the merch of the coin. She's remarkable in her understanding of the kind of iconography of this and, and, and how she can project it. And she does that within Russia and sure enough the nobility of her court rushed to be inoculated and Thomas is kind of exhausted by all these people turning up going do me do me and uh, and and she says oh you know the people that have already had smallpox are disappointed because um, they, they can't kind of join in this fashion and they're kind of crushed but she also uses this externally outside of Russia and she writes to um, um, to Frederick the Great of Prussia she writes to Voltaire she writes to to, to many people and she she's very different in the way she projects it then she says oh I was barely in bed you know just got over it really quickly I'm this kind of superhuman figure aren't I wonderful and Frederick the Great kind of tells her off you know she shouldn't have taken this risk and he's kind of very Prussian and serious and Voltaire with whom she has this rather flirtatious extraordinary completely letters only relationship they never meet and he says you've been inoculated as easily as a nun taking an enema (laughs) Uh, which If that's not a compliment, I don't know what is. And she laps all that up, you know, and, and it, this strengthens her identity. This is this is someone who's taken a brave risk with her own body as a woman, as a female leader, and has, you know, that's how to lead your people. Right. And, and you've already um, alluded to it a little, but I wonder if we can hear a bit more on how you think this episode really combats or perhaps changes her character in that that there are aspects of her character that have perhaps overshadowed this this enlightened thinking that really this episode demonstrates i think she's she's just the most extraordinary um character it's impossible to pin someone of that kind of infinite variety down and so i suppose what i've tried to do with this is look through a sort of pinhole camera at this person who you know, is portrayed in so many different ways, including by herself. You know, she wrote her memoirs. She had her portraits um, painted. She was really conscious of her own image and image making in an actually recognisably extraordinarily modern way. I, I, you know, one of the things that 
even at school when I learned about Catherine the Great, I was taught, or it, not in the sense that it was true, but I was told the story about, you know, her alleged kind of sexual preferences about kind of, you know, horses and all this nonsense. And I was taught it as a kind of, oh, it's not true, but, you know, hey, there's this story about her. And then obviously she's seen very frequently through the prism of her her various lovers. And it's not to say that they're not important, you know, clearly they, they are, Potemkin particularly in her life. But actually, this is something that she did with her body that people don't know about. And that is extremely courageous and and completely her own decision, her own choice, her own use of her body to speak for her, uh, her beliefs. Um, it's incredible kind of conviction. And I, I was interested when I was reading about her later in her reign, which isn't the period that I cover... You know, if you look at the way this by this time she's um, led big territorial expansions of Russia, um, gone in, for example, to Crimea, taken part of Poland. Um, she's Russia is a big threat to the West by this time. Um, at the time she takes the uh, does the inoculation, it, it's an ally of Britain, but the rest of Europe is fearful of Russia by later in her reign, and there are political satirical cartoons of her showing her there's one called the imperial stride it's very famous with her stepping with one foot in um in russia and the other stepping across to constantinople and underneath her skirts are the male all male rulers of other european states looking up her skirts and they're making comments about her about her political ambition but they all have this sort of sexual innuendo and so her powerfulness as an empress was the, the attacks on on that were were framed in this very you know misogynistic way they they attacked her her the fact she was a woman and her and her sexuality and her sexual appetite alleged sexual appetite and you know and then the moment she died you know the first biographies of her were were representing her in that manner as well as this sort of lascivious woman and you know 250 years on we're still we're still inheriting that. And I want people to know that this was something quite extraordinary that she did, that she did with her body very bravely, that we've all but forgotten. Absolutely. It's a, it's a remarkable episode and it's a remarkable relationship that she and um, themselves come together to to make this big leap. And, and I wonder if we can just sort of perhaps uh, finish up by, by asking what became of Dimsdale? Well, you're right about the relationship. They got on like a house on fire, you know, remarkably well. And it's such an unlikely friendship in a way. She was, you know, this kind of pyrotechnical, extraordinary character, incredibly charming, very much loved people. And he was much more diffident, much shyer, um, but very trustworthy, very honest, very plain speaking. And I think she hugely recognised that and appreciated it in a court where she would have been subject to all kinds of flattery and plotting and so on. And he he was straight with her. And they maintained that friendship. They continued writing to one another um, for their whole lives. He would send her gifts. Um, he actually sent her Italian greyhounds, two of them, which she adored. And they went on to have lots of puppies. And she, um, she's actually painted with one of the descendants of one of them in a late portrait of her. Um, and she really did um, adore Zamira, this dog. So they, yeah, they, they continued that relationship. In fact, he came back to Russia in 1781 and inoculated her two grandsons. So you can see they, they really, this was not just a kind of, you know, a, a contractual arrangement. But Thomas Dimsdale went back to Britain 
obviously with a, a level of, of fame and certainly with an enormous amount of money and reward from Catherine, like dramatically. Uh, she was she gave him £10,000 and a, and a £500 a year annual pension and a title as a baron, a Russian baronetcy. He comes back to, to Britain, very well known, and he then campaigned. He campaigned for wider access to inoculation, particularly to the poor of London. As I say, he was a Quaker. He was a social reformer. He was involved in, um, he supported movements to end the traffic in enslaved people, um, in prison reform. You know, he never lost that desire to to change the world, really, you know, in his small way. He was a he was a reformer like her. He wanted to see improvement. And he wrote more medical treaties. He kept on researching inoculation. Uh, and it's interesting to read those because you recognise how, even in the kind of late 18th century, how much doctors really did understand about contagion and about viruses, really. They didn't understand germ theory, but goodness, they, they really were fully across how smallpox spread. And they had all kinds of ideas to uh, address that which we'd recognise today. And as you say, he does continue on into the, the age of vaccination. What do, what do we know what he made of that? Sadly, we don't know. Um, Edward Jenner published his inquiry, which um, explained what he actually called inoculation by cowpox. It was that same technology, but using cowpox to inoculate a mild disease, in other words, to address a very virulent one, fatal one. And that's that huge dramatic step that would then lead to vaccination. Thomas Dimsdale died in 1800, so he was a very old man. We don't know if he met Jenner or whether, you know, or what his views were. I have a feeling that he would, well, he was a natural philosopher. He was a, he was a doctor. He would have addressed this uh, new development in the way he addressed everything. He'd have tested it, he'd have looked at it. But I think he was someone who'd he'd explored inoculation all his life. He had a lot of belief in it. And I think he might have been one of the sort of old school who might have been a little bit sceptical about Jenner's discovery. But he was driven by facts, he was driven by experience. And I'm sure that, you know, had he lived longer and still been working, he would have been convinced by by those facts, by the fact that vaccination worked. And one can't certainly argue his efforts in terms of bringing inoculation to a wider audience before that anyway. No, definitely not. Um, he, you know, he wrote a whole series of treaties. He campaigned, he argued, you know, he was one of many voices. We tend to have this slightly top Trump's version of history where, you know, only certain people can be, can be prominent and, and, Thomas Dimsdale is significant partly because he's associated with such a, a famous individual as Catherine the Great. But there were many doctors, not just in Britain, but in Europe, who were exploring inoculation, who were working through this incredible international global scientific network, helping each other, learning from each other. Um, and they all pushed understanding of this technology onwards. And, you know, we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. These are all giants in their own way and that's who Jenna could draw on and and from Jenna we have you know the covid vaccination of today so there are clearly many parallels um to the situation that we've many of us have found ourselves in the in the global situation over the last couple of years what sort of things were you coming across when writing this book that really rang out to you across the ages it was it was a really quite strange and remarkable time being in a kind of peculiar historical sort of echo chamber really i think i mean clearly 
obviously smallpox is a is a dramatically um more severe virus than than covid is but nevertheless that sense of family pain family loss of people's you know sheer distress at losing loved ones um that that kind of resonates down the centuries and also the economic impact of um epidemic disease uh, on communities on towns that um you know where markets had to close you know um uh, uh the courts might shut, schools would close, people, and, and the sheer cost of caring for people actually as well, that really impacted communities through smallpox. Another thing was data, the use of data. Um, I mean, that really, that idea of, com- of comparing mortality statistics, that com- risk comparison absolutely begins with smallpox. That use of, use of statistics to evaluate a medical p- procedure begins with smallpox. And that's exactly what we're seeing with Chris Whitty and next slide please you know we're all saying how much riskier is it to get COVID than to be vaccinated so and then of course that you know the backlash against it that that um the you know the anti-vax sentiment that's as I've mentioned is also very much prefigured with anti-inoculation fears um and I think also I was very interested in the notion of leadership in a in a time of kind of pandemic crisis which is obviously uh, what Catherine is doing, leading by example. I think we saw this idea of example and leadership during COVID as well. If you remember the kind of se- selfies of, uh, you know, world leaders having their vaccination, you know, proving that they're invested in this, proving that they believe in this uh, this technology, um, which is really very similar to what she was doing, leading by example. And I think that finally, I'm interested in the idea of um, of compulsion that's become um, obviously a, a hot political topic in Europe and in the United States. How far is it useful to compel people to undergo vaccination or require them to do it? And Catherine the Great is very interesting here. I found a, a quote in a footnote in one of Thomas Dimsdale's treaties where he quotes her, and I don't think it's ever been used before. And they go walking in the garden while she's recovering at her palace outside St. Petersburg. And she sees some um, peasants who've been inoculated. And she says to Thomas that she isn't clearly is an autocrat. She could require anybody to do anything. She could introduce compulsory inoculation, but that she doesn't. She chooses to do this by persuasion and that she believes in persuasion as a method of um, of extending this uh, this new technology, this is the way to to get people to do it. And in fact, she even admits to him that the the peasant that she's been paying, effectively bribing uh, these people to undergo inoculation, and that they've got wise to this. And having accepted one ruble, they're now asking two. Um, and I find that that's a very engaging thing that she was willing to admit that, frankly, she was being you know <laughs> her goodwill was rather being abused. But it's an interesting point about her attitude to power, I think, as well, and not just to inoculation. That was Lucy Ward. Her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, is out now, published by One World. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.